Hi, welcome to Origin Stories, a podcast about leadership inspired by comic books. Specifically, that first comic. You know, the one that takes a seemingly ordinary person, gives them superpowers, and then sets them on the path to save the world. At some point, we might all be lucky enough to figure out our own superpowers and what we're meant to do with them. This podcast series seeks out origin stories from business and community leaders to learn about their path to discovery and what drives them to do what they do every day. My name is Rita Volpe, and I'm recording today at Collective Coworking Space in German Village, just south of downtown Columbus, Ohio. I'm joined today by artist and community builder Adam Brulette. Adam's known for his iconic artwork, largely involving round-headed characters, dudes, mermaids, superheroes, and more, full of color and simple lines. But don't let the cartoonish style fool you. While sometimes they're a pure celebration of pop culture, there's also critique and thought-provoking pieces that will make you pause. In addition to creating his own work, Adam has a slew of other projects. He does an environmental, web, and graphic design work for small and large businesses through his company, Little Industries. He's also a constant community builder, showcasing other artists through his block fort space, events, and even an upcoming book, which I'm excited to hear about. And finally, Adam is a teacher and a mentor. In fact, I first met Adam over 10 years ago when he was my printmaking teacher at Columbus College of Art and Design. Adam, I'm so excited that you're here today to share your origin story. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So since this podcast is about origin stories and inspired by comic books, I was actually inspired and excited here from a video profile of yours that you once thought about being a comic book creator. So, and I, I want to learn more about that. But for now, do you have a favorite comic or origin story? Um, I grew up reading every superhero comic you could possibly imagine. I had a huge comic book collection. But I'm, I'm going to say that the character that most inspires me, which has a superhero aspect to it, is Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> um, Love him. I feel like uh, that is, one, is a huge inspiration for me, um, Bill Watterson's writing and, and art style. Um, a big reason that I drew the way that I drew and, um, and, and also a way that I thought the way that I thought. And I love this idea of, you know, this little boy who like the superhero-ness of him is actually not the character that he turns into. It's the imagination that he has, the, the constant, um, consideration and wonderment about the world. Um, and I, I feel like it, if not um, that I am that way, that I aspire to be that way. And I, I totally remember that comic. Um, we had the big anthology of it. And I was always disappointed at the time, but very respectful. Now knowing what I know about Bill Watterson, that he chose not to do any mass marketing, right? So you couldn't get mm -hmm. the Calvin doll. You couldn't get the Hobbes doll. Um, he just wanted it to be pure. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that aspect of the comic too. I also do. Well, so since we're talking about a character who is a child... I want to go back and since this is origin stories, I want to learn about your childhood. Let's go in the Wayback Machine. Tell me about Adam as a kid. I am probably the quintessential definition of a suburban, like middle class kid, um, which in a way is sort of like, um, man, I wish I had some sort of story that I could have, you know, come from nothing and been some, but I had things that I needed. I grew up between Gary and Chicago, mm. um, you know, a normal kid reading comics, playing in backyards, yeah. playing GI Joes and Legos. Yeah. And, um, and by the time I, you know, got into middle school, I was on baseball teams and I was kind of this just nondescript, you know, 
every kid. And um, when I was in sixth grade, my parents got divorced. And I remember going from being like sort of this middle class um, to like living with a single mother Mm -hmm. and uh, me and my sister in a little condo and uh, moving to a a more affluent neighborhood um, in the Cleveland area. And when we got there, I remember um, kids, you know, saying, oh, you're you're poor, you live in a condo. And Mm -hmm. I think that switch um, going from uh, one environment to another and being in a more affluent environment, I started getting really bothered by um, the way people treat each other. And I started Mm -hmm. thinking more socially. Um, I started noticing that like, yeah, I wasn't the best athlete. I liked playing soccer. I liked playing basketball, playing baseball, but a lot of the kids were really mean. And um, so then that kind of pushed me towards this, um, like skateboarding, punk rock, playing in punk bands, Mm -hmm. um, world. And a lot of that kind of really defined, um, a lot of the things that I am now, um, in terms of, uh, thinking about the world for yourself, um, that even thinking about what, you know, being in a punk band was and playing in punk venues, Mm -hmm. um, got kind of annoying to me because I found it to be this scripted thing. Um, and I really like the, the, um, the ability to think for myself and, and to analyze the world and to think about uh, the differences that people have and, uh, and how, what I do can affect those people. Mm -hmm. Um, that's cool. And so you mentioned a couple of defining moments for you, things that shaped you. One is, you know, your parents getting divorced, the move, um, you know, joining this band all along this way. Was there anyone in particular that influenced you and helped you have some of the ahas that you're describing? Um, yes. I mean, definitely at the moment of my parents' divorce, I I was in an art class that I had a teacher, Dan Novotny, um, who, uh, just kind of, I think knew that I needed encouragement and saw that I was like, you know, having a rough time or whatever. Um, I really was kind of a, a loner and solo when I was, um, going through the transition to the new, uh, living area and the new environment. And really my best friend, Rick, um, who is now a park ranger and we still keep in touch. Um, we met and he was like kind of this stabilizing force for me, Mm -hmm. um, and, and has been for forever, but, um, just this one person that, uh, when you're, you know, everybody else is, teasing you or making fun of you or you don't fit in and you don't feel right and then there's that one person to sit down and say like hey let's talk and let's be friends and let's have real conversations mm-hmm. and uh that too became defining you know uh knowing that having real conversations with real people um and and anytime somebody's different than you being able to like talk to them and look at them and you know speak with them about themselves that's become a big part of what I do too um, all through all the businesses that I've had and all the um, activities that I've run, events that I've run, spaces I've run, I, I very much want to be a person that um, will sit down and talk to just about anybody. Yeah. Um, and I think I got that from him. I love that. Well, and I, I thought as I was thinking about your career, about all the community building that you've done, and I wondered where, where that came from, what sparked that. And so I'm, we're hearing a little bit about that now. That's mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned, you know, all sorts of activities, Legos and the reading, the comic books and the, the punk rock. But then you said you had an art class. Where, where did the, the, the drawing and the painting come from? And when did that start for you? Being creative in general, yeah. I think 
Legos were a big part of that mm-hmm. um, and, and reading comics and cartoons and stuff when I was a kid. Um, I can remember as early as, you know, being five or six years old um, and having, you know, waiting for my mom to get home from work and I would make all these Lego creations and line them up on the counter and then she would come home and I would sit and one by one I would go through and I would tell her what each thing was for and why it was there and what, how it interacted with the other things. Um, I always drew. Um, I never really thought about it as like, something that was a career or something like that. And I don't know that I even still think about it as a career necessarily. So I ended up at the Columbus College of Art and Design and that um, was life-changing in that everybody at art school is way more talented than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, I I realized when I got to art school that I wasn't a good artist. Okay. I was okay. And how did you and, feel about that? Um, at first I was upset because I was, I realized like, oh man, there are people that are way better at being artists than I am. And everybody's so cool and everybody has their own style and look at these goth kids and look at these punk kids. And like, everybody was like, so, um, had these like individual personalities. And I mm-hmm. felt like I was milk toast suburban mm-hmm. kid that didn't really have much of an identity to, to himself. And that forced me to kind of think about like, what am I? Am I a costume? Am I dressing up? Am I part of a subculture? Am I Like, you know, what music do I like? What, like, I didn't even really worry about that in high school. The one thing, the the very main thing that I learned early on in college was that, okay, I'm not as good as everybody. So I need to work at getting better Mm -hmm. and I need to listen to the teachers and I need to understand that I don't know anything and I need to get better. I started finding that I like, I really had interest in what was going on in school. I wanted to know, I I liked learning a lot. Can I ask a question about that? Because, and I'm curious your opinion. So you said as a kid, you were creative, you had some creative pursuits, um, and then you went to school, right, for art. Do you think creativity can be taught? Um, I get asked this a lot. Yeah. And I, I go back and forth. Um, I'll say no, that I don't think that it's something that can be taught, but I think that everybody has a certain level of creativity that Mm. can be fostered. Okay. So you could have somebody that's extremely creative that never fosters it. And, um, and you can have somebody that's not necessarily that creative, but learns how to maximize the amount of creativity they have. Got it. I also don't think that it's something that's unlimited. I don't Mm. think, I think creativity, um, when you hear of somebody having a writer's block or an artist's block, like, I have had moments where as I'm making things, I like my brain just feels like it ran dry. Like, like I ran out of creative choices and, um, it doesn't go away. It maybe exists in a different area, which is partly why I starting early in college, I started diversifying the things that I was wanting to do with my creativity. Like I can't just make artwork all the time. I went through a period in my life where I said, I'm just going to be an artist and that's all I'm going to do. Yep. And it got to the point where I felt like I, like, like the dry Lake Travis in the middle of Texas where you just (laughs) sucked all the, sucked all the water out of it. And, um, and so I, I started saying like, well, what if I did some graphic design work for somebody and I could apply my creative energy to uh, something else Mm -hmm. and help out a small business Mm -hmm. that I'm friends with? Or what if I ran a space or what if I started an event? And I started finding that that helped me balance things out. Yeah. I get really worried when I see, especially schools saying, come, we'll teach you creativity. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a weird, 
that's a weird thing. I, I can't ever put a, a definitive, like, what is that? Yeah. Phys- physically, m- mentally, what is, how do you teach creativity? I don't know. Well, and I, I've been doing some research, and I know there's neuroscience around. I mean, I think there's a couple of ingredients to creativity. One is just having open-mindedness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you have to be open to different possibilities. And, and then what you were describing about taking on different projects, it, it's almost like fueling your brain, right? And fe- mm-hmm. Feeding your soul to some extent, right? But giving you exposure to lots of different ideas. Mm-hmm. And so you never know how those ideas are going to connect And I think having some combination of that allows you to at least have some of those creative thoughts. Um, But I I don't know how necessarily educators are teaching that. Unless unless it is workshop in that way. Like, hey, let's get you in a crowd of people, talk about a bunch of ideas that aren't familiar to you, then go back and put it through a a lens of whatever uh, process you have, Mm -hmm. you know, drawing, architecture, cooking, whatever it is like, and, and like really think about like, so taking somebody who has an interest in cooking as a system of creation, mm-hmm. um, and taking them to an environment that they've never been in and exposing them to new tastes and flavors and cultures and things like that. And then bringing them back and saying, what could you do with that? Right. Like maybe that's a way to foster creativity. But, um, I, I think that it's, um, largely up to the person that wants to be creative to do that themselves and and yeah so one of the things that um you know i think is fascinating i think i heard this in another um interview you had done you had said in this interview that you were inspired by another artist you you were kind of going down a path where you were trying to emulate someone else Mm -hmm. and you had this epiphany and tell me if i'm recapping the story incorrectly but you had this epiphany that you needed to be working in your own style and I would love to hear more about that epiphany because again, you know, I said, I'm, I'm not a creative person. My friends and family would tell me very differently, but I think I have creative envy. Like mm. I, I should, like being an artist means you should do this thing. Mm. And really I should know what I do well and just be That's, steeped in that creativity, whatever that is, that is. That is my exact experience. Yeah. So especially getting to art school, everybody has this thing that they're into these things that they do. Um, and I met a, a very smart guy. Um, a, a, I would consider him um, a life-changing mentor of sorts, mm-hmm. but also maybe one of the more devastating people that I've ever met in terms of... Um, what does that mean? Their desire to make people like them. Oh. And oh. so... Um, and this was a teacher, and he was a great teacher. He was. It was like... Um, you, you remember the TV show Mr. Wizard? Oh, vaguely. So Say more. This printmaking teacher that I, um, that I had um, who... He made amazing artwork and um, he was so inspirational. And it was like every class of his was like going into watching Mr. Wizard. Like there were <laughs> science experiments and okay. and he was excited and he was extremely passionate and he could get the passion out of other people. Mm. And you would have a three-hour class that kids would stay three hours after just to continue cr- critiquing work. And, okay. and I just felt like, man, there's so much like energy to and knowledge that's being deployed here. Yeah. And um, in that, I didn't realize while I was doing that, that the work that I was creating was like work that would make him happy or oh. work that he would like. And I got really unhappy. I loved the class, but I hated what I was making. I felt like everything I was making was fake. Okay. I felt like I was trying really hard to do something that somebody wanted me to do. And I had a critique that went very well 
and I walked away from it and I felt very empty. Like, oh. like, uh, this, this, everybody loved this thing and I hate it. And wow. so I went back and I, um, like started thinking about what, what I like, why did I go to art school in the first place? How did I end up here? Mm-hmm. I actually got out of Calvin and Hobbes book. The first one that I, I remember getting as a kid and I read through it and I was like, you know what, this is what, this is me. This mm. is the way I grew up. This is what I'm interested in. And I said, like, why can't, why can't the big discussions that we're having in fine art classes be about this kind of stuff? Like Calvin and Hobbes has just as much depth as anything else. Mm-hmm. And I started looking at old drawings of things that I did. And I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to pare this down and I'm going to change my art style completely. And I, I went into the next critique after this great critique I had. Mm-hmm. And I drew a series of cartoon characters and, um, and they were stick figures at the time, okay. little oval heads, little red bodies. None of them had mouths. None of them had, familiar. Yeah. Just uh-huh. simple stick figures. And I was like, if I can convey in these complex art processes, mm-hmm. all these ideas, can I do that in a simplified like cartoon format? Yeah. And that teacher absolutely hated what I made. But when I made it, I was like, you know what? This feels right. This mm-hmm. feels like the thing that I want to be doing. Yep. And so I started using these characters mm-hmm. and the style as a way to like communicate the things I wanted to communicate. And I started finding that the more I developed it and the more I altered it and edited it and added to it and give them thumbs, give them mouths, uh, give them expressions, give them costumes, give them environments, give them animals, give them whatever. And the more I started adding to it, the more I realized like there's this whole language that I could speak that to an audience, a general audience, I'll say, um, not necessarily the art school kids, but um, that I was communicating very clearly some of the things I wanted. Mm -hmm. And the more that artwork became something that was mine, that I felt like I owned, um, I went through my entire senior year of college basically at odds with this person that was my mentor and advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was okay with it and yeah. I was okay with him not liking the fact that I was making these cartoons. And at the same time, um, you know, I was telling people I was playing in punk bands and playing shows and stuff. And I started just realizing like, why am I wearing patches on my clothes? And why am I like, I'm not some dirty punk kid. I'm some middle-class suburban kid. And yeah. I just like this music and I like what it speaks about. And like, um, there's things about me, like I, I've never had alcohol. I've never done a drug. I've never smoked a cigarette. And those are things, those are choices that I made because I wanted to make the choices for myself, not just do things because everybody else does them. Yeah. And I was able to, you know, go to punk shows and just dress like I wanted to dress with plain clothes. And when people would look at me and say, Oh, like, you don't really look like you're in a punk band. It's you don't like, belong oh. here. Yeah. And and then I started, you know, watching football again and like, cause I like watching football and I should be okay with, uh, liking punk music and also watching football and making cartoon characters and playing Legos and talking about my feelings. If I feel like I want to yeah. talk about my feelings. And, um, it became by the end of my senior year, my, my senior year of college was very interesting cause it was, it was very freeing to just do the things that I feel like I wanted to do and say things in the way I wanted to say. And then I started finding myself encouraging other people to do that. Yeah. So I'm curious about that because I mean, this is, I think a really important epiphany and sadly, I, I don't think that 
every person gets to have that aha that you should be authentic to yourself and it's okay to be you and you don't have to be this persona in order to be successful, right? You're going to be more successful if you know who you are and what makes you tick, right? And and lean into that kind of stuff. So in your role as teacher mentor, how do you help others have that self-discovery and build that confidence that it sounds like you had, in spite of having really negative feedback from, you know, an important teacher along the way? And I, I think actually the reflection on that teacher helped me learn the lesson of how to help somebody else yeah. was not to inflect what I think somebody should do. Um, I do a lot of asking people questions about what they want to do. And when mm-hmm. they say they don't know what they want to do, um, I kind of go into a process of um, asking them a series of questions to identify the things that they like about themselves or about other things. Um, like what? What questions do you um, ask? Like it could be as simple as are you a day person or a night person? Okay. Um, it could be are you, uh, you know, when I'm talking to artists, I asked an artist yesterday, a, a young artist that's uh, a photographer that's looking to get their work out. And um, they came to me and said, hey, I, I'm, here's the things I make. What do you think? How can I get better? And we started talking. I said, are you an additive or a reductive person? You know, do you think of... What do you mean by that for people who perhaps aren't familiar with Sure. Like when you're building a piece of artwork or, or a, a concept of something, are you starting with a base and building up? Okay. Um, kind of like you would with Legos. Yeah. Or are you a reductive person where you have a block of stone and you're carving away and there's a sculpture there? Um, this person being a photographer had never heard additive or reductive process. Mm-hmm. So we started talking about, okay, an additive process would be, you know, adding all these um, extra elements, putting filters on things, right. cutting things up, making collages. Or a reductive process is like a, you know, like a man ray or something where you're taking a, an image and you're finding ways to reduce the amount of stuff that's seen. And through that process, I think that artists like the person I was talking to um, end up kind of like you think through it a little bit. You start recognizing like, oh, wait, what do I how do I do this? Um, And that helps you get closer to, well, what are the things I'm interested in? And then it's my job as advice giver or uh, mentor or helper to hear somebody say like, this is what I want for myself. And then me to figure out ways to enable them to do that that don't have to do with me making them do what I want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, um, a strong draw for people wanting to make other people like themselves or to find people like themselves. Sure. And I've found it extremely um, enlightening and freeing to be around people that are not like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes to, you know, when I'm running a space, Blockford is full of 30 individuals that all work in different disciplines or from different backgrounds, different educations, um, and Independence Day Festival. Even the team that led it was, you know, people that come from different backgrounds with different ideas that argue and battle through ideas. And um, I have always appreciated like a team like that being mm-hmm. able to be different intentionally and having that difference of opinion um, ends up making for a better whatever. Sure. And if you can do it for yourself and you can surround yourself with people who think differently than you and act differently than you, it's kind of like what I was saying about taking a chef and introducing new flavors. Right. Um, you don't know if you're going to like that flavor or not until you go and you experience it. And if you don't, you don't have to adopt it, but at least being exposed to it is helpful. I think those are wonderful tips to help people not only understand themselves, but then, again, be open-minded, right, to what other people have to offer. And so I'm curious because, you know, 
I think being an artist can be a very individual type of profession, um, but you have become quite a community builder and you've had different spaces and different shows um, and different events where you're bringing people together. Tell me a little bit about wh where that came from and maybe a bit of the journey of, in building art community here in Columbus. Sure. Um, I'll start by saying that I think of me as an artist and me as a community builder as being two very, very separate things that happen to overlap with each other. Okay. Um, my artwork and my creative process is, uh, as much as I like the fact that people enjoy it and want to own it and want to experience it, um, it is made for me. Um, and it Interesting. is, it is, it started, the community building started out of a desire to feel less selfish. Uh, talking with a friend about a gallery owner that criticized me once and said, Adam needs to decide whether he wants to be an artist or whether he wants to be a community builder. Oh. Um, that you can't do both. Like it's binary. You can do one or the other. It, 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 in a way, it kind of is. Um, where it's like, yeah, you, you, if I really wanted to focus and be an artist and just do that, I'd have to like give in to my own selfish nature and say like, I'm just going to do what I want to do all the time and you should pay attention to me. Okay. That's not, I just didn't, I didn't grow up that way. You know, I have a mom that taught me and my sister to share everything. Um, and I, I kind of feel like I need to do that. And I do do that. Yeah. I, I isolate myself and make what I want to make. But I had to do something else. And, and some of the design work, working with other companies, helping people develop products, teaching classes, mm -hmm. uh, helping use the skills that I have to help other people learn how to make things that they want to make. Um, and then eventually with festivals and spaces, um, you know, Junction View Studios, Taco Cat Cooperative, Blockfort. All those were that Independence Day, Agora, like all those things were uh, creative problem solving. Um, how do we how do we solve a problem? You know, Junction View started up when the Short North started sort of having a decline of places to show. The mm -hmm. problem was artists didn't have an opportunity to show a lot of places. Yep. And so me and a group of friends said, hey, why don't we make some opportunities? And we started having shows and then people started coming. And, and then later on, I, I think that you know, Junction View created its own problem. People have this expectation that, you know, they could just show whatever they want in a warehouse yeah. whenever they want. And, and you know, then there weren't as many galleries. So now when we're creating Blockford, I was like, you know, we need a white wall gallery space that serves as a middle step between showing in a warehouse and showing in a fancy gallery somewhere. And I think it's like, you know, you constantly have to solve what the need is in the community. Sure. It's kind of, um, you know, going into the book, um, that's what I was trying to do. And so this book project started three and a half years ago. Okay. And, and what's the name of the book? The book is called In Between Everywhere. And what does that, where does that come from? Um, me thinking about like uh, this idea that Columbus is in between everywhere. Okay. Um, that a lot of the artists that are in the book, um, I purposely chose artists that I think have made an impact in the Columbus community have a very specific style that they work on that is um, already refined and recognizable as theirs, mm. but maybe haven't taken the leap to be like showing in museums or things like that. So people that are sort of on like... On the cusp. Yeah. Or they're, they've, uh, I don't, again, I don't want to say that Columbus is maxed out, but like these people have done great things in Columbus and they just need that next step out. Yeah. And so I started um, three and a half years ago, like 
coming up with this idea of doing um, what's called an exhibition in print. And I said, well, why don't I just make a catalog of Columbus artists mm. and then find a way to get that out? So um, there was a buy-in. I put together a list. I had I sent it out invites to all the artists, and then I let them know, hey, we're going to collaboratively pay for this. And what happens is each artist pays for three copies of the book. They keep one. And then the other two are packaged up into a, a nice box with a mm. little introduction card. And then they're shipped to, um, we'll be sending out to 100 galleries and museums oh, wow. across the country. Cool. So I, I kind of feel like it's like a Johnny Appleseed thing where mm -hmm. I'm just putting together a list of artists that I admire. And then I am writing the book as if I'm a curator. Um, okay. So I've put together this exhibition and I'm walking you through the museum and I'm showing you here are these artists and this is why I think each of these artists is successful and what I think that they do that um, that is recognizable. And uh, so I wrote, um, it's about a paragraph per artist, um, blurbs that uh, kind of describe. And then each artist has three images of their work in the book, um, all the you know titles, pricing. Mm -hmm. And then everybody has links to their website and ways to contact them um, in the book. So even if the book goes out and somebody sees a painting they like and they follow somebody on Instagram, like... It's, again, just being a Johnny Appleseed for Columbus, uh, it's sort of solving that problem saying, hey, how do we all collectively work together to, like, get out of town? And if that means I have to put a little bit of work into it mm -hmm. myself, like, I'm fine with that. I love that you've taken that initiative, and I'm really excited to see the book. I think there's a book release party on, what, September 12th? Yes. Cool. So we'll come back to that so we can plant seeds for folks who are listening. Um but what strikes me, Adam, is, is like there's been such diversity both in like the projects you've taken on and as you add more and more people, there's complexity. Mm -hmm. And uh, with all of these things, and I'm going to ask you to be a little vulnerable here, there, there sometimes is failure that comes along the way, right? Like oh. things you're trying or like there, there's conflict. You mentioned, you know, sometimes there is conflict with people that you're working with. Tell me about a time in which you, you've had a failure. <laughs> and like, I mean... What happened? What did you learn from it? Like, what you know, how would you counsel other people who, you know, are encountering failures along their career journey? Sure. I'll say, um, uh, to preface this whole thing, like, I have had many failures. <laughs> <laughs> um, you and, me both. and for being able to say that you've succeeded at something, you know, there's all these cliches that business people want to use. Oh, you know, fail and fail again until you mm -hmm. have a success. And um, it, it, you fail the first time, you know, go fail again. Like, I, and I think as an artist, um, as an artist, we are uniquely taught to fail. Mm. Um, in what way? Uh, you make artwork, you come into a critique, somebody shoots holes in it and you have to look at that and be like, instead of being like, I'm terrible, I suck, I'm going to quit. You have to be like, okay, I'm just going to go make another painting. And a lot of people don't see that behind the scenes of art. They see what ends up on the gallery wall. Absolutely. Not all the pieces that get thrown away. Um, and you start learning like, you know, hey, not everything is going to work out the way I planned. You know, but then there's other major, you know, something like Wonderland was a project that um, me and a group of friends had kind of started. And we attempted to buy the Wonder Bread building okay. um, from the I, owner. I and, vaguely remember this. And you it, have all the smells. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge undertaking that I don't think that any of us knew what we were biting off. And yeah. um, I learned exponential amounts of information. I know more about fundraising and environmental studies and building process and working with architects and designing and building a nonprofit. Um, it, I learned so much from it. 
So for me to call it a failure, I still say like, no, I I learned a lot from that. And a lot of other institutions and places benefited from the work that we had kind of laid the groundwork. But from the public's perception, um, yeah, I was a failure, you know, I because it didn't come to fruition. Right. Okay. Right. And and there are many factors to that and there are many misconceptions about that sure. and um and the the actuality is I, I have to be okay with it. I spent 4 years of my life doing nothing but trying to make that project happen and um I I can say that like I never really quit on it. Mm-hmm. Um that that I that I proved that I was willing to, you know, to make that risk and that sacrifice. Yeah. Um and that's okay. I, you know, I've gotten into uh, situations where I've had business partners that, you know, you end up not seeing eye to eye and businesses come apart or relationships that are that way mm-hmm. or friendships that are that way, um, art partnerships that are that way. Um, and I, like every time something like that happens, yeah, there's a moment of like, you feel defeated, you feel upset. Right. But like, if you stop doing all the other things that you like doing because of that, like you have to, you have to keep going. I, and I know that it all sounds really cheesy and cliche when you start <laughs> saying it, but it's like, take a break, take a minute for yourself, sure. realign your head. Um, but like when you're done, go do something like I, I am a firm believer of, and I say a lot of the times, like I, I don't feel afraid of death mm. because I That's feel deep. like I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I, I, I just mean like, when somebody's like, well, you could get hit in a car accident or something like that and you could die right now. I think like, okay, well, did I do the things that I want to do in life? Like, you know, I have a bucket list like everybody else of things that I'd like to experience and do before I die. But like on a day-to-day basis, I'd say I'm doing my best to maximize the time that I have had and that I don't see any reason to stop that. I think that it's good to have failures and to learn from them, but not to st- have them stop you for long. Um, so, I, I, yeah. I hear you. And it is, it is hard because some of them are bigger than others, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they always, at least for me, get, give me pause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I even have a necklace that says, keep going, right? Mm-hmm. You just have to keep going because as you keep going, like new opportunities present themselves. Definitely. So we've been talking a little bit about maybe things that are draining for us or failures, and let's switch gears a little bit. So you've worn a lot of different hats, right? We've talked mm-hmm. about being an artist, being a designer for others, teacher, community builder. What role do you love to play and why? Um, friend. Yeah. Um, I, I like helping people. I, the, the older I get, the more I realize, like, I just really like helping people. Even, even when I think back to like being in a band, I wasn't the best guitarist. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't the most into the music or anything like that, but I really liked driving the van and letting my friends all get as drunk as they want and drive around. And you're a cool friend. (laughs) Yeah. I like, I like taking care of people. I like when somebody's having a bad day, I like to be the person to talk to them. I like being able to confront big topics friend just told you that they're getting a divorce. Like I'll be the person to sit down and say like, Hey, let's talk. Like I, I, I want to assume that I want to hear you out. I want to be there for you. So this may be a related question. I'm curious your answer. So if you think back to the successes you've had and how you've grown 
as a person and, and even your career, um, what would you say has been your superpower? Um, so when I think about that, I'll, I'll, I'll say, okay, superheroes, when they think about their superpowers themselves, uh-huh. um, you know, Cyclops with the X-Men, people are like, oh my God, that's awesome. You can shoot lasers out of your eyes. Uh-huh. And he's like, well, actually that's, that's kind of like my deficit. You know, the superhero always thinks that the superpower they have is the, is the deficit. And, and when I, I, again, I'll go back to this, like being a friend and wanting to help, yeah. like wanting to help is my superpower. It's the thing I'm good at. And I know that I'm good at it. And knowing, but it's also a major Achilles heel. Like mm-hmm. I want to help everybody all the time yep. and people take advantage of me. And, um, I I've been manipulated and used before, you know, and, and it's all out of this desire to help and like learning how to control my superpower, just like any other superhero yeah. does is learning how to, um, find a way to say no sometimes and learning when you are most helpful and when you are just being used. Um, it's learning to set, uh, financial priorities too. Mm. Like, you know, a client will come and they'll say, I've got this cool project and I've got no money. And I'm like, I'll do it. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's like, how do you, (laughs) so how do you, how do you say like, you know what? I know that my superpower is worth something. And, and I know that like, there's a lot of people to rescue. How do I, how do I deploy that in the way that's going to help the most? And also, um, and this is something I, I I've been thinking about a lot lately with the way the world is, um, uh, when you pull up on a off ramp and somebody is asking you for change and you can't, you, you, you look at them and they look at you and you have a hard time, like saying like, ah, I feel weird rolling down my window and giving you change. Mm. And like, is this the best way to help? Mm. I, I constantly am thinking about what is my best way to help? Is it, is it me spending Sundays working in a soup kitchen? Right. I have a different skill set than that. And I have a different world that I live in. And I know that, the things that I do as an artist and as a designer and as a community organizer are going to be more impactful and more helpful than me constantly giving somebody 25 cents or going and working in a soup kitchen. And it's not to say that those things aren't valuable and that those aren't compassionate. It's saying that if I deploy my skills, um, uh, the things that I'm good at in a, in a positive way that I can make a larger impact doing them. Um, I, I tend to do like uh, work for organizations like uh, I'll use BESA as an example. Yeah. BESA is very good at getting people to volunteer, putting together furniture and working mm-hmm. for the Mid-Ohio Food Bank and soup kitchens and things like that. I would rather spend my time and energy helping them design things and um, create rewards for the people that are working for them because I know that it'll make a larger impact for an organization like that. And I, I love seeing them succeed and I, I hope that whatever thing I can create for them is a, is a nice reward for their, their guests. Um, I, I like to spread my impact that yeah. way. Um, I think that's lovely. And I mean, such great lessons from both thinking about your superpower as both a strength and perhaps a weakness mm-hmm. um, and how to prioritize and really think about your impact. Um, I know I need to, th- Give that some thought myself. So thank you, Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we are about at time. So before 
Um, we close. I, I do want to hear a little bit more about the book release next week. Where is it? Give all the details. Sure. At, um, at Blockfort, outside in our alleyway, we've been doing a series called Alley Islands Weekday Oasis, which is a after work sort of uh, two bands play on a pirate ship that converts into a stage. We have a food truck. We have uh, Collective Arts Brewing will come. Uh, Ajimama will be the food truck. Um, Good Reverend and uh, Mary Steele are the uh, performers this time. And each time we try to couple it with some other art thing that's happening. Um, so we've had performance artists come and do things. Um, this time will just be the book release. Okay. Uh, so we'll have a tent set up. The books will be there. And will um, all the artists be there? All the artists are invited. Oh, okay, um, cool. Obviously getting 42 people all in the same <laughs> um, space at the same time would be difficult. But That'd be a different superpower. Right, right. Um, and one that I don't even know that I want. Um, so yeah, the, the book will be available. And uh, we sort of have a little party in the alley uh, September 12th from 6 to 8 p.m. Okay, fantastic. Well, I, I know I have it on my calendar. I'm super excited to see how you're uh, showcasing more artists in, again, a very different way. And I know that I always enjoy a visit to Blackboard. The, the murals that you guys have outside and the artwork that you curate inside is always fascinating so th thank you for being here adam yeah thanks for having me it's been wonderful um so this has been origin stories you can download this podcast and subscribe to future origin stories via itunes spotify or wherever you consume your audio thanks for listening friends i hope to catch you next time